Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask, Jesus, that you would open our hearts. That Holy Spirit, you would come and speak. That you would move and transform us to be more like you as we seek to sit under your word. Uh, that you would shape and transform us as your people. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, what comes to mind when I say the word pilgrim? Pilgrim. Perhaps you think of uh, the early American pilgrims uh, sort of, you know, coming across and Thanksgiving and turkeys and that sort of thing. Maybe pilgrim, the primary way you've heard that word is in Pilgrim's Progress, the book by John Bunyan, that classic allegory. This summer we talked about pilgrim psalms the psalms of ascent which we which we talked about as them being songs and prayers that were sung and celebrated as israel traveled as pilgrims from their home back to jerusalem pilgrim refers to being on a journey doesn't it, it refers to some sort of movement some sort of adventure you might even say a pilgrim is on a sort of sacred quest you have pilgrimage to particular sites. One's traveling through a land, uh, traveling on mission. And for us as Christians and as the church, the pilgrim imagery is helpful because it depicts us moving forward in a walk with God, that there's, there's some sort of progression, some sort of journey that we're on. And that's helpful to think about because Peter imagines the church as a pilgrim church, as a pilgrim people or as sojourners. He's writing to Christians who are scattered, who are not, in a sense, at home. And here in the ESV, if you look at verse 1, he says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Uh, exiles is, is really sort of picking up the idea of, of not being at home. I think pilgrim or sojourner is a little closer uh, to, to what he has in mind because a sojourner is one who is living temporarily in a place that's not home uh, but they're meant to live there it's not like it's all terrible but they know it's not their ultimate destination and in so many ways that's what the church is isn't it we are here in this time in this place and called to be here but we live in a temporary situation we, leave, we live between the two advents of Jesus, from his first coming and his second coming. And we, we indwell that space as we wait for uh, his ultimate revelation, for him to be revealed and to come again in his glory. And what that means is Jesus commissions the church as sojourners in this in-between time and place to live for him and to extend the gospel in the places where he plants us. Peter is calling this uh, fledgling church to a particular kind of life as pilgrims, as sojourners. And as we are going to see through the book, he calls them to be holy people, to be faithful people, to live for him in a culture and in a country that is not godly, in a culture that's far from God. Uh, what do I, how do I live for him? No one in the church at the time expected the country around them to uphold godly values. 
No one in the church at that time expected to have certain rights as Christians. Freedom to worship or freedom to gather or assemble. And so how are they to do that? How are they to live out the love of God in a country and in a culture that was far from God? And Peter writes to them to talk about those things. They're living under the Roman Empire, of course. And even as disciples, no one's expecting that as a small band of Jesus followers were somehow going to overthrow the Roman government. That was not on the agenda, so to speak. Uh, they, they weren't wondering how do we overthrow or bring about meaningful change. They were just wondering how do we get on with our lives loving God, loving our neighbors. Now that change would come actually in a few centuries following. Significant change as the church lived out its mission faithfully the Roman Empire would actually be overturned, but that was not necessarily the first goal. But rather than complaining about their situation, Peter calls them, in the words of, of Pastor Velma when she spoke uh, just recently, to run their race, you could say, to get on living for Jesus. Or in the words that Pastor Brian used uh, on New Year's for our New Year's message, they're to seek the welfare of the city where God's put them. They're to seek to... Uh, begin and have a fresh start and to get on with loving Jesus and loving each other and being holy uh, in uh, difficult circumstances, much like Israel was called to that in exile. And in some ways, their culture is not so different from ours, right? In the same kind of way, we live in a time where uh, I think often as Christians, we can listen to the news and think, man, things are not super great out there and it's not as I would like it to be. And how do I respond to that? And First Peter speaks to that reality. What do we do in those sorts of situations? Well, the first thing to remember is, of course, that we are sojourners also. We are also in an in-between time. But Peter calls them, he has a particular thesis, and Peter's call to the church is that they be humble and holy witnesses as they live that pilgrim life. And notice what he does right away in verse 1. He calls them, as God's chosen people, which means he, he, they're called to a standard of character or a standard of life that's marked by holiness. They're chosen by God. And they're chosen, they're from all over the place. Look at, right? To the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. He's writing to a, a range of people. And he's calling them as a people together. You are now a people chosen by God gathered together, and you're to live a life marked by this sort of humility and humble and holy witness. And that's what we're going to talk about in this series as we sort of move through it. As God has chosen these people together, they become a new sort of people together. Where at first they were scattered, now they're brought together through their common life by God. And notice, uh, in, in much of the same way. Uh, we're from all over the place too, aren't we? We're not all from Dryden. There's people here from different countries who've moved here, uh, different nationalities, different backgrounds. Uh, in much the same way, again, this has been uh, the call of the church. God brings people together from diverse backgrounds and makes us united in Jesus. Many people brought together. And notice, though, uh, how they're brought together. Look at verse 2. How are we brought together as different people to live this life as sojourners in this time? We're brought together by the foreknowledge of God the Father. In the sanctification of the Spirit, 
and for the obedience to Jesus Christ. Uh, there's a real obvious sort of Trinitarian overtone there, right? Of the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. But he makes a great point, and the point is this, that if you are in Christ, and if you're here this morning and you are in Christ today, do not forget that long before you chose Jesus, God had already chosen you. Long before you were able to return the, the measure of your love to God, God was already pouring His love out upon you. Long before you were aware of who Jesus was and what He wanted to do in your life, the Holy Spirit was drawing you unto Himself. God knew you and chose you. He knit you together in your mother's womb. He made you. He loves you. He keeps you. And you are made for life with Him. You are made capable of relationship with the triune God who created the universe. You are made for that. And not only does He know you, but He's turned His affection towards you. It's one thing to be aware of someone. It's another thing to turn your affection to that one. You are known and loved by the Father. But of course, we're sinful, and our sin separates us from the God of grace. And this is why we need the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. We are loved by the Father, but it's the Holy Spirit who sanctifies us. We are not holy. He is holy. We are not capable of loving others well. The Spirit teaches us how to love well. It's the Spirit's work in us who convicts us of sin and who guides us. It's His sanctifying work in us that makes us possible to be declared holy, that consecrates us from sin, that frees us, that purifies us from the life that we once lived and from the sin we may still struggle with. It's the Spirit of God who declares you holy, who can set you apart for Him. And how is that possible? Well, it's made possible through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for you. It's made possible by His shed blood for your sin and for mine. And it's through Jesus that we are born again. What does it say? For a life of obedience to Jesus Christ for obedience to Christ, for the sprinkling with His blood. That's a reference to the cross. It's the cross and the blood of Jesus shed for us that frees us from sin, that prepares us for a life of following Him. So the Father knows you. He has chosen you. He loves you. The Spirit's come to sanctify you, to make you holy, so that you may then walk in obedience to Jesus Christ. And all of that is not written to individuals, though that's true of us individually, but that's written to a community of believers who are called into relationship together to the life of, of love and being known and being sanctified and walking in obedience with the triune God of grace. And to that we can say amen. Amen. But there's more. There's more. Because he goes on to say in verse 3, we are saved... And we are born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that according to his great mercy, 
He's caused us to be born again. Friends, before we can learn the craft of cultivating holiness in our lives, before we can learn what things we need to put down and what new things we need to sort of pick up, the tools of the trade, before we can rely on the Holy Spirit to sanctify us, we must be born again. We first have to come to this place of repentance and forgiveness from God, of putting our faith in Jesus Christ, that his work on the cross sets us free, that it covers your sin and mine, that I can be forgiven and restored because of him. Before I can begin the journey of sanctification or before I can start walking in the journey of spiritual formation as a pilgrim, I need to first bend the knee to Jesus. Now you can try to figure that out on your own. You can try to live a holy life. Uh, but you'll, you'll learn soon enough uh, that it's quite difficult on one's own strength, isn't it? It's made possible through the relationship with Jesus of saying, He's my Lord. And I take my cues as a, as a, as a husband and as a father uh, as, a, as a person, as a pastor, my, my goal, my, my purpose is to seek to follow the one who is Lord of my life. And that's the call for all of us, that he is our authority. And I had to choose as a child, when I first discovered who Jesus was, in whatever small measure I could, I chose at that moment to bow the knee. And then as a teenager, when I knew more about what it meant to follow Jesus, there came another moment, was actually at my baptism, where I sort of realized more fully what allegiance to Jesus really meant. And then even as a young adult, because at 13, you maybe don't know a whole lot about what life is actually about, do you? As a young adult, there came a moment again where I realized I need to make him the Lord of my life. He already is the Lord of my life. I'm already a Christian but now as an adult, there's something I need to do to choose to make this faith my own. This isn't just my parents' faith. This isn't just something I'm going to do because I'm in a youth group and everyone else is doing it. I need to choose to follow him as an adult. And there's something powerful that happens as we choose to bend the knee to him. And once we do that, once we're born again, the Bible says we're made a new creation. We're justified before God. And we can begin that journey of walking with Jesus. Now notice how Peter puts this. According to the, his great mercy, according to God's mercy, not according to what I brought to the table, was I justified before God? No, not according to any gift or talent of my own goodness, but according to God's mercy, we were caused to be born again for what? For a life of woeful drudgery. No, for a life of just sort of slogging along until Jesus comes back. No. For a life of just, you know, living in sort of this, this kind of terrible state. No, no. What's he say? To a living hope. We're born again to a living hope. And that hope is made possible through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You're called to a living hope. We're not called to a life of brokenness though we will know our brokenness as we follow jesus we're not called to a life of sort of boring ho-hum as we go through this life we're called to a living hope 
And that's made possible, Peter says, through the resurrection. It's the resurrection of Jesus, which needs to be a historical, physical, bodily resurrection, not just a sort of spiritual idea that Jesus was somehow resurrected and oh, how nice, and now we can sort of be enlightened that somehow he you know, taught us some good things. No, no. It's the specific, historical, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus that we believe in. And because of his bodily resurrection, it is the down payment from God that God will redeem his world, that he will undo the brokenness of sin, that he will undo death itself. That's what the resurrection's about. That someday what God has done for Jesus, he will do for you and I. And death itself will be defeated. And so when you come to Jesus, you become a new creation here and now in this world as a sojourning person, as a sort of pilgrim person. And when you come to faith in Christ, it may not feel like you've changed a whole lot. It's still your fingers. You know, it's still my toes. It's still my hair. And my organs haven't shifted a whole lot. I've maybe grown outwards, if anything. That's the main growth that's happened in my life since coming to Jesus. Maybe I got taller too. But more or less, I'm the same person physically, but something has transformed spiritually. And in fact, the Bible uses the most sort of dramatic language possible to describe the change that happens to you when you come to Jesus. It says you've been born again. And if you think back to John 3, what does Nicodemus say when Jesus says you need to be born again or born from above? Nicodemus thinks Jesus means it physically, literally, or at least he pretends so. And he goes, what, I'm supposed to get back into my mother's womb? And Jesus sort of, you know, sort of smirkingly is going, well, no, that's not quite what we're talking about. Uh, No, you don't need to be physically born again. But this is the language we have to use to come close to describing what God does in us when we come to him that you're actually born again. Or, elsewhere in the Bible, we use the term new creation. Now, you weren't suddenly made a new physical... It's not like your molecules displaced and then you got sort of put back together. Right? You didn't sort of get teleported from one place to another. But the Bible uses that language because it's the closest we can get to describing the utter transformation that Jesus does in our lives, that you're a new creation. You've been changed Uh, in a sense, you get a taste of what life in the future is here and now. And it's almost like the Bible says, and you ain't seen nothing yet. Uh, You're a new creation. And so Paul begins his letter on holiness for sojourners with this call to hope, to hope in what has actually happened when we come to Jesus, that you've been known by God, that you are sanctified and being sanctified by the Spirit, that it's It's a calling to a life of obedience as we seek to follow Jesus. And we have living hope for here and now uh, as we look forward to that future. And he calls them to hope. Take a look at uh, verses uh, 6 and onward. He calls them to hope because he has a real pastoral concern for them. And the concern is that they need to know the fullness of their hope They need to rejoice because right now, in this sojourning life, they are grieved by various trials. I like that Peter is not sort of just sort of pie in the sky floofy about this, right? He's very real about what Christ has done in us, but he's not saying, and you know, whatever happens in your life is just sort of that it's not really real, it doesn't really matter. Don't don't be honest about it, just pretend it hasn't really happened. No, he's quite honest about it. You are grieved. Life is not always good. 
But remember who you are and what God has done in you. And if you remember that, you can face the trials and sort of put them in proper perspective because of what God is doing, has done, and will do. Take a look again at verse 6. What does he say? In this you rejoice. All that we've just talked about. In all of that you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, so for a temporary time, if necessary, meaning these things are not necessarily by accident, these things happen in our lives. For a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So in a very real way, Peter says, the living hope we have as Christians, the, the joy of it, the truth of it, the goodness of it, that hope is mingled with a sense of grief. Our joy is, is taint, not tainted per se, because it's as though it's not good somehow anymore, but it's mingled with grief. We can have the living hope of the world to come and of what Jesus will do in us. We have all of that, but we're still pilgrims on the way. We're still sojourning. And as long as we are, we will encounter real hardship and real suffering in our lives. And if you hear, uh, you know, sort of, there's a, a can be a tendency in some Christian circles today to sort of uh, emphasize that the Christian life is uh, always, you're always going to be healthy and you're always going to be wealthy and you're always going to have sort of whatever you want. Um, that can be a dangerous path to go down because the Bible is very clear that we follow a crucified Lord. And that means there are often times uh, where our life, will, as we follow him in our lives, we'll, we'll encounter brokenness and suffering and grieving and trials just the way he did. So Peter doesn't say we get to ignore suffering or be dishonest about it. But what he does say is equally important. He says the reality of what Jesus has done puts our hardships in perspective. It's hard to sort of say that without it just sounding crass. But this is, this is what God's word says to us, that the various trials that we face are temporary. They're not eternal, so praise God for that. But also that there's a purpose for them. Did you catch that? There's a purpose in some of those trials. Look at, look at what he says. Again, verse 6 and verse 7. You've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. So the churches in Asia Minor, we know we're encountering suffering, and the, the rest of the letter sort of gets into that a little bit. They, they were encountering hardship. And Peter sort of reminds us, that shouldn't come as a surprise. Following Jesus will include hardship. But Peter calls us uh, to be realistic about it, and then to recognize that often in the trials we face, our character is being refined. Or better put, the opportunity for our character to be refined takes place. I think we need to participate in it to a certain degree for character to be refined. Uh, but like gold in the fire, he says, like gold in the fire, there is a testing or a purifying that can happen in those moments of difficulty, in those moments of testing. 
And as faith is tested, it's meant to result in praise and glory and honor to Jesus. And so those difficult moments in your life, now I don't know what's going on in each of your lives. I know what's going on in a number of your lives, though. I have the privilege of being aware of some of those things. And a lot of you are going through real difficulty. There's all kinds of issues represented here in the room. I'm going through real difficulty. There's all kinds of stuff in me that God is working on. There's all sorts of, of real hardship present here. But, but, those difficult moments in our lives are, are put in perspective when we see them through God's eyes. When we see them, that they are temporary, they will not be forever. And also that through them, God wants to shape your heart. God wants to shape your character. He wants to, and this is kind of how it sounds, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, he wants to see your faith is genuine. That your faith will hold up when things are not well. Will you be just a fair-weather Christian when things are good? Or will we choose to follow Jesus when things are not? What I love about this is, is Peter helps us to see that even if God is shaping us through, through difficulties or through trials, it's still ultimately for his good and for his glory. That even when we are learning something about our own character or, or our own circumstances, when we're being shaped through the grieving that happens in various trials, the point is that it may result, his word in verse 7, result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus comes again. Now we may not always face those difficulties very well. And often the shaping of our character does not look very grandiose or very successful. It's not like we come out the other end being like, I've been shaped by Jesus and now I'm just perfect, you know? And it's not like a checkbox of things. Like, I learned patience. I learned peace. I learned how to be joyful. It's like, oh, kind of phony sounding. But you were likely shaped as a whole person through what you went through and are still learning some of those things as you go. But the purpose is that at the end of your life and when Christ comes again, we can look at that and say it was for his praise and it results in glory and honor given to Jesus. Well, that's a hard thing. I, I, mean, I don't know if it's very easy to just go, well, how does this issue in my life translate into that? I'm not sure exactly how that might work. And I think it probably depends on what, what the trial is. Um, and there's a lot of nuance there we could talk about if it's, if it's you know, persecution, if it's sickness, if it's uh, brokenness in relationships. If it, you know, all of those have a different sort of uh, thing to them. They're, they're all different in some degree. Uh, and so exactly the result of that, I can't really say exactly how that will play out. But the purpose of that is to say, 
when you face difficulty, it sure doesn't mean God forgot you. And it sure doesn't mean God stopped loving you. In fact, God will use those to shape you for his ultimate glory. And we can trust in that. And then the rest of the passage that we read, Peter, Peter just points us forward and upward to Jesus. And I'm just going to read the end, a uh, couple verses again before we wrap this up. Though you may not have seen him, uh, you love him. That's us too. We have not physically seen Jesus. But we are choosing by faith to love him. And though you do not now see him, like this, since he's been ascended and resurrected, you haven't seen him. Though you may not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It's neat. Peter kind of pictures salvation as something that starts in us here and now as we come to Jesus, but that kind of the fullness of salvation isn't revealed until Jesus comes back. And so we're sort of we can live with the, the living hope of now, though the trials happen, but there's something kind of set in the future that we look forward to, that we're ready for. And this is what he said back in verse 4, right? We're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then he says this, right? To an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading that's kept in heaven for you. In some sense, the fullness of salvation, you can, it's started now in us, uh, it's already here, but there's a sense in which salvation in its fullness is not yet here. And Peter says you can look forward to that. God is keeping that for you. And you will experience that when he comes again. Or when you uh, finish your race and go to be with the Lord. Whatever would come first, there's a fullness that you wait for. So how do we, how do we sort of live into this this week? And I, what, what really struck me about this passage is how like how thankful peter is for what god has done it just sort of overflows with joy for who god is and what jesus has done on the cross and what what the spirit can do in our lives like he's just sort of bursting you know it's kind of the feeling that we have that he's just really really excited to write to them and part of it is he just has this great sense of gratitude for who god is and I think part of cultivating holiness in our lives as, we're, as we'll walk through this letter together and think about being Christians, I think it starts in some ways with cultivating gratitude. Peter has a real deep sense of gratitude because he has a deep sense of who God is and who Jesus is and what, what God has done in our lives. And so I want to encourage us this week to cultivate gratitude in our hearts that we would have a similar sense of of joy and love for God because of what he's done for us. And so what I've done is is given in your bulletin are some sort of practical ways that maybe this week you can grow in gratitude. And these are just suggestions, of course, you don't you can think of all sorts of other ways, but one way is to just intentionally Reflect each day on what God is doing in your life. What is, the, what is worth celebrating? Uh, what is the joy that, that you can turn to in what God is doing in your life? And as you make that a habit, as you make that a practice, uh, see if you're not growing in gratitude after a week of trying to focus on that in your heart.
Um, there's some other examples there as well. But Peter, Peter focuses our attention on who God is and what God has done. So whatever you might choose to do to try to live into that, uh, let it grow a, a sense of joy and hope in you. And uh, yeah, let's, let's see what God does in us as we seek to take that on as his people. Would you stand with me? I'd just love to pray for you as we wrap this up. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you again for your word. Jesus, this morning we're reminded of uh, your great love for us, that you know us, that you call us to yourself, that you are shaping us and transforming us, uh, that Holy Spirit, you sanctify us, that we're called to obedience before you, Jesus, that we're called to bow the knee, to be born again. All these, all these terms, all these phrases we use to describe the newness and the life of coming into relationship with you, God. And Lord, I just pray today over our church family, over anyone who's watching online, anyone who might be visiting or maybe viewing this later or listening to this sermon later on. If you're here today and you've never bowed the knee, or you've never been born again, then I encourage you to take that step today. And I encourage you to come to Jesus and to lay, uh, lay your life at his feet and choose to accept what he's done on the cross for you, to repent of the sin in your life, to ask God for forgiveness, to choose him as your Lord and Savior. For many of us here, we've made that step or we've grown in that over years. Some of us came to faith as, as young people. Some of us have come to faith later in life. But Jesus, regardless of, of when you've called us, you've called us. And Lord, I pray that you would remind us of the deep work that you do in our hearts. Lord, that you would continue to sanctify us, that you would help us to choose to be obedient to you. Lord, that as a pilgrim people, as a sojourning people, we would want to extend and live out the gospel of Jesus in the places where you planted us, at work, at home, at school, uh, in Dryden, in Ontario, in Canada, at this time, uh, in the ways that uh, are, are life-giving and give you the glory. That's one part, but Lord, the other thing we've mentioned this morning is the reality of the trials in our lives, that we are grieved by trials. And Jesus, this morning, there's grief present in the room. There's ones here, Lord, who have lost loved ones, and that that ache is fresh and it's raw. Lord, there's folks in our community who are mourning today. Lord, there's people around the world who are grieving at atrocities and at tragedies in your world. There's brokenness, Lord, in, in divorce. There's brokenness here where uh, kids have ran away from from relationship with mom and dad. There's brokenness, Lord, as, as families struggle. There's brokenness, Lord, in all sorts of ways. There's grief at the trials we face in our lives. Jesus, we don't relish those. You don't call us to relish those or to seek that. But your, 
you call us to be honest about the reality of walking with you in this time. And that means there will be difficulty. But Lord, we pray today that just as Peter has encouraged us through your word, that we would see the difficulty in our lives from your perspective, from a heavenly perspective. Lord, that these things ultimately are temporary. Lord, that you can use difficulty for your glory and you desire to shape our hearts and our character to, to test the genuineness of our faith, your word says. Not so that we can be puffed up and boastful in ourselves that we had the right attitude or did something this way or that way, but for the purpose of praise and honor and glory to you. And so, God, I just pray over each of us here, anyone who's listening or watching online, whatever the trial is that we are facing, Lord, we just say today we give that to you. Lord, we give it to you. We give it to you again. And Jesus, we ask that you would guide us by your Spirit. Show us the way in which we are to go. Lord, where there is grief, would you bring your comfort and your peace and our, your hope back to our lives? Would you sustain us, Lord? We can't do it on our own. Would you help us to, to obediently follow you? And Jesus, would you, would you uh, hone our faith? We want our faith to be genuine. We want our faith to be deep and to, to be on a firm foundation regardless of the storms that would come. And so, Jesus, would you do that work in us? And for those of us that are feeling especially weak and broken today, remind us, Lord, that we are called to this life together. We're not called to sort of trudge through it alone. Lord, would you help us to uh, persevere in these difficulties because we love you and we know that in the end they, even those things can be used for your glory. And that doesn't justify sin, that doesn't justify evil or brokenness just because you can transform it. It doesn't justify it. But Lord, we do trust that you can take what was meant for evil and turn it for your good. And so Lord, today help us to walk in the truth of your word we pray that you would help us to become humble and holy witnesses for you as we set off into this new year. And with the words you've taught us, Lord, we just pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.